the dotted line. Faster, 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 until the thrill of speed overcomes the fear of death. Attributed to Hunter S. Thompson. Friday, April 15, 2011. Among the various other startups in our shared office space, many of which went on to far greater things than AdGrok, was GetAround. To use that X of Y formulation, so beloved of startup self-promotion, this was Airbnb for your car. By placing a small electronic device in your car to permit controlled access, you could list your car on a user-facing site that permitted searching and filtering. The borrower paid an hourly rate, GetAround took a cut, and you got paid for owning an often idle asset, similar to a spare bedroom on Airbnb. In the midst of this Brazilian telenovela we called Tech Entrepreneurship, fellow startup traveler Matt Tillman and I were plotting a bit of fun. I'd noticed that a few of GetAround's investors, no doubt as part of dogfooding solidarity, had placed their cars on GetAround's site. Temptingly, there were a Tesla Roadster and a Porsche 911 somewhat incautiously for the taking. Tillman, among his various depravities, was a seasoned track racer often invited to drive for various teams in the busy Northern California racing circuit. I pitched Tillman on taking out the two vehicles as a diligent study in the startup status quo, and he countered with making it a race to Stinson Beach. I booked the Tesla and was emailed an appointment time and place. Two different get-arounders whom I recognized from the founding team were there, and they made quite a production about walking me through the car and finally giving me the keys. Loser pays, Tillman announced outside where we met up. He hadn't managed to snag the Porsche, but did get a Mini Cooper S, not a bad choice for the winding hillside roads we'd be navigating, as well as the street traffic passing duels complete with tight squeezes in between cars. With Tillman's semi-pro driving skills, it would be a fair fight. I took an early small lead through SF and over the Golden Gate Bridge, using the Tesla's rocket-like acceleration to blast through the openings in traffic. Electric cars are unlike gas-powered vehicles in that their engine's RPMs can vary so widely and the power it transmits is so constant wherever it's revving that they don't need a transmission. A Tesla is effectively a car version of a fixie, with a bionic, doped-up Lance Armstrong pedaling. As a result, there was no shifting, no gaps in power, or lurching as the car went from zero to 120 miles per hour. It was an endless orgasm of hurtling acceleration that seemed to violate laws of physics. Tillman was no slouch, though, and in the crowded traffic, the obvious power mismatch was immaterial. It came down to passing, a willingness to wedge oneself between cars, and taking advantage of the tiniest break in traffic. By the time we pulled off the 8-lane 101 to get on the 2-lane curving Highway 1 to Stinson, I was just ahead. Despite the monster engine dynamics, the Tesla didn't handle all that well. The batteries made the car heavy, despite it being so small it could barely fit inside, and it had understeer in turns. Immersed in my mental car review, I didn't notice Tillman angling for a pass on my tail. When I saw the Cooper flash past me on the left, even the Tesla couldn't accelerate fast enough to stop it, and now I was stuck riding his tail. Fuck. Losing is worse than death, but there wasn't much I could do about it, as the road to Stinson is notoriously curving and narrow, with cliff-like drop-offs that make any serious error equal perdition. Forget passing. Even assuming I could control the hyper-accelerating Tesla around a turn, as traffic was thick on a Friday afternoon. Finally, approaching the tiny town of Muir Beach, and just a few miles from Stinson, I spotted an illegal opening. 
The road was straight enough to see a hundred yards or so. If any car pulled out from the left side, we'd have both died in an explosion of expensive wreckage. Making sure to not tip off Tillman, I swerved across the double yellow, jerked the Tesla's nose down the opposing lane, and hit the warp drive. Let the record show that on the afternoon of April 15th, tax day, 2011, at approximately 3 p.m. local time, I irresponsibly blasted through Muir Beach on the wrong side of the road doing low triple digits. The entire town was more or less a three-second blur seen through the roadster's tiny windows. Tillman was fucked now, with no passing lanes, no dotted center lines, and the road now composed of gentle swerves rather than hilly hairpins. He'd never pull off a pass against the Tesla. Ha! A few minutes later, I pulled up in front of the sand dollar in Stinson and immediately attracted a scrum of bicycle-riding local kids who oohed and awed over the flaming red roadster. The car's battery was down to what seemed one quarter, and the dashboard was signaling various warnings I didn't understand. No matter. After enough hazing of Tillman, beer, and oysters, back we went to SF. Not sure I'd managed to get the car back with the mostly depleted battery. I drove like a grandma until I hit Lombard Street. There I ran into a convertible Porsche 911, the twin air scoops announcing it was one of the turbo varieties. Here was a real racing machine. SF is a city populated mostly by pussies, so finding a decent street race is difficult. The driver was older and paunchy, but expensively dressed. My guess was real estate or some form of old boy's entrepreneurship like an ad agency. Electric cars make a revving challenge impossible, so not really expecting a reaction, I just punched it when I came alongside him. He had seen me coming. He gunned it a split second after me, and the race was on. Lombard was thick with traffic, but moving. Every stoplight was a drag race, and Tesla and Porsche swerved and weaved through the rush-hour worker bees slumbering through their commutes and their lives. This old fucker knew how to drive and was clearly no stranger to street duels. I was a couple of cars behind him as we reached the end of three-lane Lombard. The light went yellow, and he roared through while the plotter in front of me decided to stop. Boxed in, I was screwed. The Porsche's whooshy engine sounded a vacuum-like note as it turned and disappeared down Van Ness. Even after winning one race, there was always another, and always somebody with a faster car, wasn't there? This old guy knew that, which is why he was racing reckless young jackasses like me. He probably had a wife, kids, property, and all that bougie shit, and yet the moment he saw a challenger in his rear view, he tossed that aside for a bit of the old screeching rubber. The fact he was risking all that he had achieved by committing felonious acts of reckless driving, reckless endangerment, and exhibition of speed, to use the California Penal Code's name for it, was immaterial. He didn't get to that Porsche by turning down all-in challenges. Neither will you, gentle reader. Back at the parking lot underneath the Moscone Center, the get-arounders were waiting for the return of their prize rental. They seemed remarkably incurious about how I could have completely uncharged a Tesla in a three-hour rental, having traveled only 50 miles. The normal range was 200-plus miles. Get around CEO Jessica Scorpio. If you're reading this, extremely belated apologies. When I returned to a computer and a state of sanity, I had two emails waiting for me, one from Kevin Thau of Twitter and one from Gokul, both with attached documents. Saturday, April 16th, 2011. You mean to tell me you had no hand in coming up with this deal meant to screw investors? I almost had to hold the phone away from my ear. 
Sarka had just reviewed the Twitter term sheet I had forwarded. I was stomping my usual nervous pacing grounds up and down 9th Street in Alameda, in front of British Trader's house. I had made the possibly misguided move of moving back in with her and Zoe. I had nothing to do with this, Chris. These are the first real terms we've seen. Twitter had been so indifferent to Sarka, it had defaulted to a term sheet heavily privileging the founders, which is why Silicon Valley's most famous investor was presently yelling at me. How right was Sarka to be angry? Twitter, for once, had been true to its advertised word, and our deal had come in at around $10 million. However, the amount slotted to investors was not the $2 million or so you'd have expected given the cap table, but a measly $1 million. As I was soon to learn, this is a common tactic. You pay a pittance for the company, engineering it such that investors get little, and then pack the real value into the hiring offers for the employees. TechCrunch would carry the news that the company sold for X million dollars, but technically it would sell for 10% of X, while the rest went into fat signing bonuses and heavily laden vesting schedules for the founders. With no prompting from us, Twitter had given us a plum offer. Sokka had a right to be angry at Twitter, but he was severely overestimating my knowledge and skills. I was so clueless, I had naively assumed that investors and founders would all participate in Twitter's final acquisition price on a purely pro-rata basis. Basically, whatever fraction they owned in the cap table, they got. Little did I know that in the real world of deals, what's very euphemistically called the consideration given to investors can vary widely per the whims and machinations of the founders and the acquiring company. How it works is this. The acquiring company doesn't care less how money is divided between investors and employees. As we've reviewed, what they care about is price per high-value person, that is, engineers and product managers. If that works out, and the form of payment is whatever admixture of cash versus equity they prefer or are willing to put up with, the deal looks fine to them. Every acquiring company will have such a target price per person in mind when you seriously discuss a deal. Your job as deal negotiator is to get as close to that as humanly possible. The founders, however, have a more subtle view. A deal this small is likely not life-changing fuck-you money. After you've rested and vested at the acquiring company, you'll likely wade into the startup fray again, need to raise money, and again live in the startup ecosystem. Screw your investors, and word will get around. Also, you may have a legitimate emotional bond with your investors. After all, they often stood by you when nobody else did and, like Sokka, potentially helped get the company sold. Thus, founders face a moral choice that's quite ticklish, they can opt to reward their investors for their investments in time and money, but they're essentially paying them out of their wallet. The deal is very much a zero-sum game between founders and investors in the final stages. To give you an idea of just how indifferent the acquiring company is to investors, keep in mind that Sokka was reputedly Twitter's largest equity shareholder after its founders and a vocal champion of the company. He had helped arrange its last funding round and, somewhat notoriously, was helping insiders sell their stakes in Twitter early to Wall Street speculators. To be clear, this was a favor, as it allowed employees, many of whom had worked for years for Twitter, some liquidity before the drawn-out process of an IPO. The fact such a secondary market existed for many high-profile startups was a mark of just how much the power balance had shifted away from investors in Wall Street to founders and employees in the current tech bubble. 
The Adgrok deal was pocket changed to Sokka and to Twitter, but gestures matter when ego is on the line, so Sokka was kind of right to be yelling. On the other hand, his fund had doubled its money in six months, but that wasn't good enough for Sokka or his limited partner investors. It gets worse. Chris, there's one more thing. As it turns out, Facebook wants to hire me, uh, separate from the Twitter deal. They said no to the rest, but they wanted me. Pause. What? Yeah, I won't say I'm sold exactly, but they want me to go to Facebook. Lying through my teeth, obviously. What do you think Twitter would make of it? And would they take Adgrok without me? You're fucking crazy. You're going to fuck up this entire deal. Of course they won't take Adgrok without you. You're just... You're just... He hung up on me. We'd never speak again. Then there was the issue of Facebook. In finance, there's the notion of what's called a replicating portfolio. This is a set of stocks, bonds, derivatives, and whatever else mimics the returns, while being composed of different parts, of some other portfolio of assets. Such portfolios are often dreamed up by quants to, say, profit from the rise of a given stock without having to carry the actual shares on some company's maxed-out balance sheet. That is what's called an equity swap. For Facebook, I had attempted to get Gokul to give me a replicating portfolio of my part of the Twitter deal. In fact, I had flatly told him, a bluff really, that I wouldn't abandon Twitter for anything less, and Facebook had actually delivered pricing the deal at Facebook's pre-public share price of $32 or so, we were at $2.3 million, which was about what my 25% stake in Adgrok would look like after all of Sokka's yelling was done. The numbers looked about as good as they were going to get. I made the final decision that had been brewing for days, right there on the spot. I'd join the hoodie people. We'd make the Twitter side of it work somehow. From the looks, we had them over a barrel on the deal, and even without me, it would probably get done. There was no better time to strike than now. Gogol, this is Antonio. With a deal in play, no worries about calling on a Saturday morning. Thanks for sending me the official offer. I'm pleased to see we're more or less where we need to be. So are you ready to join? Gogol asked. I'd soon learned that Gogol's sense of urgency wasn't some passing deal thing, but in fact, how he managed his entire professional life. I'm happy to join Facebook, Gokul. Great, man. We're so looking forward to you joining. Make sure to send me a signed copy as soon as you can, please. Words were grand, baby, but signatures on dotted lines make the world go round. Will do, Gokul. And that was that. The Adgrok drama was coming to an end. Monday, April 18th, 2011 at the dramatic hour of high noon, we had our first post-term sheet meeting with the Twitter deal team. I had confirmed the news about my FB departure to the boys as soon as I had committed on Saturday. It came as no surprise. If they were unhappy, they concealed it, but I noted what seemed like fear in their voices during the phone calls. In the walk up 3rd Street to Twitter, we rehearsed our game plan one last time. I was to announce the fact I wasn't part of the deal in the first few minutes of the meeting. There was no use discussing a deal that included me, and that wasn't going to happen. I was not to announce where I was headed, and instead simply slip out of the room if the opportunity presented itself, while making sure to calmly pass the CEO baton to MRM by indicating he was the person to speak with from that point on. Which is not how it happened at all. 
Jess met us at the reception area again and led us to a conference room containing the ever-present Kevin Thau and a new participant, Satya Patel, Twitter's newly hired head of product. Satya had made the friendly overture of proposing a get-to-know-you coffee or drink that very morning, which I would have to awkwardly postpone in about an hour. A former Googler and partner at one of Twitter's VCs, he was rising Silicon Valley royalty. These power meetings often had a comically dramatic staging to them. All the Adgrok people lined up on one side and the Twitter team directly across from them, as if we were the U.S. and Vietnamese diplomatic teams in 1973 hammering out a peace plan. After everyone was settled, I proceeded straight to Act 1, Scene 1 of our script. So, we should talk about the deal that's going to happen, not the one we've been discussing thus far, I'm sorry to say. But I'm actually not coming along with Adgrok on this deal. I'll be joining another company. At this point, we should talk about Argiris and Matt and how they're going to join Twitter. Jess looked as though she had swallowed a wasp. Kevin was as emotionless as always. Satya was the first to speak, adopting a somewhat aggressive tone. So you're telling us you're bailing on the deal? Yes. I replied, nodding as if to emphasize what was already an emphatic point. Okay, it was just this time. We have to discuss this and get back to you. Without much ado, the Twitter team stood up, which forced us to do the same. With awkward looks and downturned eyes, the Adgrok team filed out of the office. I'm not even sure anybody in the Twitter crew walked us out. Back on the street, from the looks on their faces, the boys would have kicked me to death had it improved their lot at all. Endgame. Then I looked on all the works that my hands had wrought, and on the labor that I had labored to do, and behold, all was vanity and vexation of spirit, and there was no profit under the sun. Ecclesiastes, chapter 2, verse 11. Monday, April 18th, 2011, 2 p.m. Back in the office, the boys made a show of going back to work on code, but their minds were elsewhere. I had just pulled a dicey ploy that presented only downside to them, mostly because of my bloody-minded insistence on going to Facebook. The same bloody-mindedness that had raised us money and defended us from legal enemies might now blow up the entire construct we had slaved to save. Within a half hour, Twitter called back. MRM took the call. I was no longer part of the proceedings. I drank in the moment. Both of them hovering over Matt's cell phone, which was on speaker, Focused on Jess Verrilli's every word, MRM wrote down the relevant deal numbers and then repeated them back to Jess to be sure. Wow. The bid was at $5 million in change. Much, much higher than I had expected. It was the same deal price from just over a week ago, which Sokka and I had to talk the boys out of accepting. Twitter was playing its monster hand very weakly. They had called back within an hour of my dropping, a valuation-killing bomb that reflected debilitating internal strife. If they had any balls, they'd have left Adgrok hanging in radio silence, ignoring all calls and email for a couple of days to let the boys marinate in their fear and anxiety. After the silent treatment, they could have bought all of Adgrok for a $20 Starbucks gift card, probably. Instead, they had come back within an hour with an offer just above the original one. Twitter was being what poker pros term a call station, and a weak one at that. The boys were getting more money than they had ever hoped for, and above the price they were already willing to sell at. This deal was getting done, despite both sides bungling and incompetence. Adgrok was already dead, 
The boys and Twitter were merely haggling over the price of the funeral. Then I felt that tingle. All I had from Facebook was its offer letter in my inbox, and Gokul's word that the company would honor the offer. I had just shit on Twitter, and then rubbed its biggest shareholder's face, namely Chris Saka's, in the fresh, warm pile. With the boys chomping at the money bit, there'd be no holding them back now. They'd do whatever deal Twitter offered, with or without me, and probably without. I needed to accept Facebook's offer immediately, but before that, an employment lawyer needed to look it over. Silicon Valley job offers can be so complex, each a mini-acquisition for one person, complete with cash, options, vesting schedules, intellectual property agreements, and so forth, that there was an entire class of lawyer who just helped you negotiate the sale of yourself. I called every damn lawyer we had ever talked to, Fenwick, Oric, our cheapy contract lawyer, for a referral. I had my newly hired employment lawyer on the phone within a half hour. I've got an offer letter. I need to know whether to sign or not. The rest of the company is getting bought by a competitor. I'm the CEO and founder. Uh, what do you need? The offer letter, your stock purchase agreement with the current employer, and your employment contract, she replied tersely. By then, the boys were running around, shuffling company docs, and nervously taking phone calls to work their deal. I was scanning reams of documents in our slow, janky scanner, and occasionally going out for a call of my own. Things took on a certain pre-apocalyptic, the Germans are coming tinge to it, or perhaps the atmosphere of the last few minutes inside the safe room of the American embassy in Tehran in 1979. One group transmitting vital information to a concerned party, another group collecting, scanning, and destroying information while planning how to evacuate. An hour went by, and finally my lawyer emailed back. You need to accept the Facebook offer immediately. You also need to resign beforehand or you'll break non-competes in both contracts. The clock read 2.45 p.m. I quickly called Amin's report inside Facebook Corp Dev to see how late he'd be there. Valley dealmakers, like small-town bankers, have cushy schedules. He was out at 5 o'clock. I had to catch the 307 Cal train to Palo Alto to make it on time. No way I could just let this trade ride overnight. The boys were heads down, discussing some aspect of the deal, their deal now, and I didn't interrupt as I collected my bicycle helmet and walked out the door of the office I had worked, worried, and occasionally slept in. On the train, which I made with a minute to spare, I started typing out a resignation email on my iPhone. An hour later, I was flying up California Avenue in Palo Alto on my creaky bicycle, back to the Facebook hack sign. I had the email ready to go on my phone, and the moment Facebook's corporate development person poked his head out of the glass door, I hit send. I was an unemployed loafer for all of five minutes. Dale Dwell, Amin Zufanun's subordinate, made small talk while internally I was thinking, come on already, give me the damn forms. Contract signed, he escorted me back out again. Adgrok, our startup baby, was effectively dead, and for the first time in a very long year, I walked out into the sunny California afternoon with nothing to do. This deal became a minor Silicon Valley oddity that confused the tech journalists who covered it. I still get questions about it to this day. The short version is that I was a complete idiot and the deal was a badly played hand, muddled through on bravado and blissful ignorance rather than savvy calculation. Master play would have been this. Continue negotiating both deals in secret to squeeze out the last of the leverage and heavily front-load the Twitter offer to include either single-trigger acceleration or lots of upfront cash. 
Footnote. Single trigger acceleration means a chunk of your unvested stock suddenly vests upon some agreed-upon event, usually a merger or sale. In this case, it would have meant I would have seen some of the upside of the deal immediately, for time served at Adgrok, so to speak, upon joining Twitter, rather than having to wait for vesting to start from zero once at Twitter. End footnote. Then accept the Twitter deal, quit the first day of work, and walk away with the upfront part of the deal right on out to Facebook. I could even have done true arbitrage and signed both Twitter and Facebook employment agreements at once and asked Facebook for unpaid leave while Twitter got settled. This would have been in flagrant violation of non-compete clauses in both employment contracts, of course. Only Twitter would have cared, but like the mark in a successful con, they'd have been too embarrassed at having been played to sue and would simply have covered it up with employees. Footnote. Indeed, Twitter did just that when the news of my defection broke on TechCrunch, and there was an internal Twitter email papering over the awkwardness I'd created by bailing, marring the celebratory air around the company's third acquisition. End footnote. That plan, however, would have required including my co-founders in the deception, as they would not have collaborated to score me a better deal, worried as they were about their own piece of the pie. Running game on your investors or your acquirers is just life in the big city, but bluffing out your co-founders, those same guys who sweated through the lows and the highs with you, is a step too far out on the prick spectrum. Why the need for the deception right up to the brink of being a Twitter employee, dissembling my intent to eventually join Facebook? Keep this singular fact in mind. We were only 10 months into Adgrok officially, and all the founders were on a vesting clock. That's right. Despite carrying the weighty title of founder, nobody at Adgrok actually owned anything yet. Why is that? Ponder for a moment. Every founder owns something like 20 to 40% of the company. That's as much as or more than what would be sold in a fundraising round. If every founder owned that stake from day one, they would all essentially hold a gun to the company's temple. If any founder decided to leave following an argument, or was forced by his co-founders to resign, he'd kill the company, as no investor would fund a company in which an equivalent stake to his or hers was held by some disgruntled outsider. And so even founders in a well-established company are on a vesting schedule and get only a quarter of their fat equity slice after a year, just as a big company employee does. The fact was that even as the Wheeler Dealer CEO, I owned no part of Adgrok. Nothing, not one share, neither did the boys. As is the case for every early-stage entrepreneur. So to actually see any proceeds from the Adgrok side of the deal, I'd have to have been there at least another couple of months as the deal got finished up. At the end of the day, Adgrok was simply a long, stressful job interview for Facebook, and ditto for the boys at Twitter. We all claim we sold Adgrok, but in reality, Adgrok was merely leveraged to score the job offers that actually made us the real financial upside, job offers we would not have been able to score otherwise. The corporate development teams of large companies, insofar as their small company deals are concerned, are really glorified HR recruiters with fatter checkbooks. That's another little detail the self-glorifying founders of acquired companies often fail to mention. Had I executed the optimal strategy, my return on Adgrok would likely have been hundreds of thousands or perhaps millions of dollars more than it eventually was. Plus, the additional cash or Twitter stock would have served as a hedge to my all-in position in Facebook. Morality, such as it exists in the tech whorehouse, is an expensive hobby indeed.
Part 3. Move Fast and Break Things Facebook was not originally created to be a company. It was built to accomplish a social mission, to make the world more open and connected. Mark Zuckerberg, Facebook Inc., IPO Documents, 2012 Bootcamp Once having traversed the threshold, the hero moves in a dream landscape of curiously fluid, ambiguous forms where he must survive a succession of trials. The hero is covertly aided by the advice, amulets, and secret agents of the supernatural helpers whom he met before his entrance into this region. The original departure into the land of trials represented only the beginning of the long and really perilous path of initiatory conquests and moments of illumination. Dragons have now to be slain and surprising barriers passed again, again, and again. Meanwhile, there will be a multitude of preliminary victories, unretainable ecstasies, and momentary glimpses of the wonderful land. Joseph Campbell, The Hero with a Thousand Faces April 25, 2011 Before the city-within-a-city campus that Facebook would come to occupy, the company was housed in two buildings in the downmarket part of Palo Alto, east of Stanford's campus. One, on California Avenue, contained Zuck, engineering, ads, and just about everyone involved in making actual product. The second building fronted on the next artery over, Page Mill Road, and housed sales, legal, operations, and everyone involved in the non-technical side of the Facebook machine. A fleet of tidy white shuttle buses shuffled people between them, and the occasional Facebooker walked the half-mile for exercise, or just to see the sun occasionally. The day-long session known as onboarding was held in the non-technical building, so white shuttle it was to Page Mill Road. The conference room was named Pong, and yes, the room next to it was Ping, a large room meant for presentations. A raised stage lined the back wall, and long, narrow desks like hedgerows crossed the room from right to left. As usual, I chose to sit in the front, right under the nose of the speaker, so I could catch every twitch and take the real measure. An HR person offered some introductory drivel or other, and then it was straight to the first speaker, my super boss, the head of product for Facebook, Chris Cox. Cox was handsome in the way of a gosling or depp, a tempered masculinity encased in a cuddly package, custom-made for female desire. It was a recurring internal joke at Facebook to point out the Twitter storm of ooing and eyeing whenever he took the stage at a Facebook PR event. He had the gift of the gab, which he used to great effect, weaving a seductive narrative around Facebook and the future of media. As the first speaker, he was clearly there to instill the big-picture vision of what we had been selected to help build. What is Facebook? Define it for me, he asked, challenging the rows of attentive faces almost the moment he appeared. It's a social network. Wrong, it's not that at all. He scanned the audience for another answer. Perfectly articulated, to the point I suspected she was a shill, a young, perky intern came out with, It's your personal newspaper. Exactly. It's what I should be reading and thinking about, delivered personally to me every day. He then embarked on a common trope among valley types, framing a product in some historical continuum of prior technologies the product currently discussed being the ultimate and inevitable final chapter in the triumphant procession. Radio and TV were depersonalized media of mass consumption, revolutionary for their time, but ultimately lacking. Steadily more focused and fragmented media, 
topical magazines like Car and Driver, your local newspaper with pull-out sections for your neighborhood, continued this trend of increasing personalization. Facebook, however, was the true teleological end goal of modern media. Facebook was the New York Times of you, Channel U, available for your reading and writing, and to everyone else in the world as well, from the Valley VC to the Wall Street banker to the Indian farmer plowing a field. Everyone would tune in to the channels of their friends, as people once clicked the knob of old cathode ray television sets and live in a mediated world of personalized social communication. That the news story in question was written by the Wall Street Journal was incidental. Your friend Fred had posted it, your other friend Andy had commented on it, and your wife had shared it with her friends. Here was the first taste for the new Facebook employee of a world interpreted not through traditional institutions like newspapers, books, or even governments or religions, but through the graph of personal relations. You and your friends would redefine celebrity, social worth, and what should be churning through that restless primate brain all day. Andy Warhol was wrong. In the future, we wouldn't all be famous for 15 minutes. We'd be famous 24-7 to 15 people. That was the new paradigm, even if the outside world didn't realize it yet. Facebook employees, we few, we happy few, knew what world was coming, and we'd help create it. It was a good pitch, and the kids in the audience were enraptured. Mission accomplished, Cox flashed a matinee-idle grin and disappeared from the stage in a flash, no doubt off to the other dozen meetings he had that day. I suspected this was a recurring bi-weekly event for Cox, the rousing speech to the new acolytes. Just the regular speech for king and country, which he had down to the point of studied and flawless spontaneity. Facebook certainly didn't skimp on putting on a good show. The next speaker was Pedro Keani, an engineering manager in site integrity. This was Facebook ease, as I'd later learn, for the security team that prevented spammers, pornographers, bots, and various flavors of malignant riffraff from destroying Facebook, or your experience of it. Pedram was one of the conduits of corporate culture that Facebook relied on to perpetuate its unique values. He would lead the bi-monthly hackathons, which had originated as all-night coding sessions where engineers came up with random ideas that often became successful products. Facebook video being one such case. Footnote. In a story that became FB lore, Zuckerberg had actually shot down the idea of launching the primitive Facebook video product. The engineers involved ignored him and locked themselves into a conference room for days to finish it, launching it against Zuck's wishes. Facebook is now the second biggest video sharing site after Google's YouTube. End footnote. In keeping with the engineering-first cultures of most tech companies since Google, hackathons had also come to serve as pep rally-like pageants of Facebookness, more than mere excuses to code all night and eat crappy Chinese food. As I'd later learn, weirdly pointless versions of them would be held in the regional offices where no engineers even worked as a sort of pagan celebration of the values of do-it-yourself creation, total commitment to the company, and disruptive innovation. Pedram was here to expound on those same values. We had gotten the prophetic vision from Cox, precisely the sort of seductive propagandizing a product person does. Now it was time to hear about the martial virtues that would make that vision a reality, which was the engineer's duty. A tall, broad-shouldered figure in a Facebook t-shirt who looked as though he worked out, Pedram commanded us in a hectoring tone. Whatever you learned at your previous job, whatever politics and bullshit you're bringing with you, just leave all that shit behind. Pedram proceeded to describe, with mounting passion, 
This new world of Facebook, where truth was the only value, selfless collaboration was the rule. Don't worry about who gets credit. And everyone took ownership, technically, if not financially, of what Facebook did. Here's where the genius in the onboarding, and more broadly in Facebook, really lay. People joined Facebook, and like immigrants at Ellis Island, left their old, dated cultures behind, replacing them with an all-consuming new one. The onboarding experience was designed precisely as the sort of citizenship oath that new Americans took in front of a flag and a public official. It was almost religious, and taken absolutely sincerely and at face value. Even in a culture brimming with irreverent disdain, I never heard anyone utter a word of cynical trollery about Facebook and its values, either at onboarding or during my years of work there. As with Americans and our troops, motherhood, and the Constitution, certain things were enshrined and nobody dared ridicule them. In a post-historical developed world devoid of transcendent values, whose pantheons looked like North Korean grocery stores, bare shelves empty of any gods or heroes, this corporate fascism was intoxicating. Along with the new iPhone and MacBook laptop sitting in front of us, we received a laptop bag with one thing inside, a blue t-shirt emblazoned with Facebook in the trademark Clavica font. On any given day, half of Facebook's employees would be wearing theirs, and many even photographed, and posted on Facebook, of course, pictures of their children wearing a Facebook onesie as their social media debut. Brown shirts became blue shirts, and we were all part of the new social media Stummabteilung. Cynicism is the last refuge of the shiftless. I don't cite this absolutist tendency for the cheap sardonic joke, the asshole hipster who's too cool for school, but also too cool to believe in anything. No, I cite it because I was as seduced as the next guy sitting there in Pong, perhaps even more. The human need for immortality projects, those ends that dole out meaning and purpose beyond ourselves, hasn't changed since the Crusades. The only difference now is the nature of the putative holy land and the means for achieving it. After Cox's rhetoric and Pedram's grim injunctions, we broke for a breather. The interns huddled in groups of what seemed like old acquaintances. I assumed they knew each other from Berkeley, Stanford, MIT, or wherever they studied. Imagine being a 19-year-old undergrad, your entire life mediated by some admixture of Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and others, and suddenly living and working right in the belly of the beast. If I had been afforded such opportunities at that age, you wouldn't have been able to shut me up about it with duct tape. Outside Pong was one of the many micro-kitchens that dotted campus. They were micro only in comparison with the cafe kitchens that churned out three meals daily. Nor were they really kitchens in that there was nothing to cook there. Mostly, they offered the packaged food, either hypertension or diabetes-causing, that formed the staple diet of a moderately self-destructive university undergraduate. As a concession to crunchy Bay Area sensibilities, there were also bowls of fruit and bins of nuts or granola. I didn't realize it at the time, but Facebook was on its way to full-on Google levels of employee pampering, and the food in the kitchens would trend more upscale as time went on, going from Snickers to Toblerone, Doritos to authentically spicy Indian chot snacks. The coffee also improved, foregoing a generic corporate roast for that of Phil's Coffee, the locavore's coffee house that had started in the trendy Mission District. By the time I left, there would be a full-on Phil's retail location on campus that served as caffeine fill station, social gathering point, and informal meeting venue. But that was in the still distant future. 
glucose levels re-upped, back into Pong we went. Calmly sitting square in a lone chair up front was an Indian-looking dude with curly hair. This man needed no introduction, being famous in a more beyond-Facebook way than Pedram or even Cox. He was Chamath Payahapatiya, one of the men most responsible for Facebook's success. As head of the growth team, which wangled new users for Facebook by encouraging things like friending, he had taken Facebook from a small network used mostly by college students to the global online identity, numbering almost a billion people by then. He was also a competitive poker player and hosted the most legendary home game in Silicon Valley, featuring regular appearances by an all-star cast of investors and entrepreneurs, as well as the occasional poker professional or celebrity athlete. Poker was behind the best-known Chamath story, which I'd hear recounted more than once, and which perhaps best illustrates his shark-like competitiveness. After an all-night high-stakes game, Chamath walks out $50,000 ahead. Deciding he needs some German rolling iron stat, he goes to a BMW dealership. The salesman, spotting a badly-dressed kid, gives him the cold shoulder and refuses a test drive. So Chamath heads over to the Mercedes dealership across the street. There they don't ignore him, and he buys a car for cash on the spot. Then he drives back to the BMW dealership with his new Benz, finds the sales guy who blew him off, and shows him the sale he lost. That's who we are dealing with here. Look, we're not here to fuck around. You're at Facebook now, and we've got lots to do. His spiel was the iron hand inside the velvet glove of onboarding. Make an impact, get in over your head, done is better than perfect, and various other rallying cries shouted from posters dotting every wall, and we'd soon find they were also taped to our new desk monitors, in case we had missed them. This was the tenor of Chamath's somewhat rambling harangue, punctuated with lots of F-bombs, delivered in the clipped machine-gun cadence of the Wall Street floor trader, which he'd been early in his career. So just fucking do it, he concluded, after twenty minutes of hectoring. Chamath hadn't moved during his Jeremiah, sitting square-shouldered, hands gripping the rear legs of his chair tightly. When he stood to leave the stage, he did so without so much as looking at anyone. Everyone seemed to be slightly gobsmacked, as when a film director hits the audience with a cinematic plot twist in the last few seconds of a movie, and a stunned silence washes over the crowd as the credits began to roll. For our next lecture, the founding legends of Facebook were replaced by the stiff and formal sheriffs of corporate propriety known as HR. Two of them took the stage, sitting side by side, a male and a female, almost as if you needed one of each gender present to discuss the sensitive stuff. Lesson one from Officer HR was one of Facebook's ever-present obsessions, secrecy. Like Jesus speaking to his apostles, Facebook often imparted nuggets of its culture in the form of parables. The parable here concerned a misguided Facebook employee who leaked news of a soon-to-be-launched product to the tech press. Zuck reacted via a to-all email with the subject line, Please Resign, an alarming presence in anybody's inbox. The email, which was projected onto the screen in Pong and read line by line, encouraged whoever had leaked to resign immediately and excoriated the perpetrator for his or her base moral nature highlighting how he or she had betrayed the team. The moral to this story, a parable of the prodigal son but with an unforgiving father, was clear. Fuck with Facebook and security guards would be hustling you out the door like a rowdy drunk at the late-night Taco Bell. Lesson imparted, time for that close second in Facebook priority, discretion. As the curator of the largest collection of personal data outside of the NSA, 
Facebook was ripe for unprincipled internal abuse. Not only was such abuse unethical, but the PR hit from a story getting out about a jealous employee who stalked his wife or immature interns checking out a celebrity's messages would be monumental and hugely embarrassing. As it was, people were wary of this drug-like service called Facebook, with which they shared their most intimate human experiences, but also subconsciously resented and feared. Anything less than the strictest discretion would threaten to revoke the tenuous past that hundreds of millions of users had granted that dark blue box to mediate their lives. I would personally know at least one person who'd get bitten with this and be terminated after the SEC, as internal Facebook security was called, found out they were looking at profiles without an official reason. It was that simple. Even try and we'll catch you. And you'll be out of here so fast we'll need to send a cleanup crew to remove the still warm coffee mug from your desk. The crowd took in all of this silently, with at most the occasional murmur or hint of furtive chatting between neighbors. The rousing buzz of the first speakers lingered. This HR session was like the DUI check you had to negotiate while driving home from a particularly convivial party. The cops seemed amenable, if a bit stern, as they went through their script. Then we came to the juicy frivolities. Here, the male, oddly, took the lead and stood up to address the new employees. Picture the Facebook corporate scene for a moment. Buildings full of young, emotionally inept male geeks, and sprinkled throughout them may be a 10% population of young women. What could possibly go wrong? Rather than harshly regulate every step of this sexual legal minefield, Facebook preferred to lay down basic guidelines. Delicately, but unambiguously, our HR man stated that we could ask a coworker out once, but no meant no, and you had no more lets after that. After one ask, you were done, and anything beyond that was subject to sanction. So you get one shot on goal, do you? I thought. Better use that one shot wisely. Next was a warning to the women folk. Our male HR authority, with occasional backup from his female counterpart, launched into a speech about avoiding clothing that distracted co-workers. I'd later learned that managers did in fact occasionally pull aside female employees and read them the riot act. One such example happened in ads, with an intern who looked about 16 coming in regularly in booty shorts. It was almost laughably inappropriate, but such was our disinhibited age. Lastly, obscenity. Among the odder forms we had had to sign as employees was one exonerating Facebook from any liability from obscenity. Whatever we saw or overheard while at Facebook could not be subject to litigation. It wasn't clear to me if this was due to, say, pornography on the site that we'd run across when screening it, or the remains of the bro-y culture that echoed occasionally with a dick joke or some guy passed out from happy hour in his underwear. We don't want to create a culture where someone is going to HR to complain every day. If someone says something, call them out on it. Hopefully it stops there and you go on with your day. Show over. We all grabbed our swag bag, laptop, and phone and got the hell out of there. Back at my new desk in the ads area, I fired up the laptop. Already there were two emails waiting. One was pro forma and simply stated, Welcome to Facebook. The other was an email from the task tracking system, indicating I had been assigned several bugs to fix. Like every other engineer, despite my also being a product manager, I'd need to go through the engineering boot camp, the six-week course that ingested you a noob and output you a Facebook engineer. Footnote. Noob, spelled out N-0-0-B, is hacker speak for newbie or beginner. 
In online coding forums, it's a term of withering contempt for someone obviously out of his or her depth. At Facebook, it was used semi-affectionately for a new hire. End footnote. It was also a weeding mechanism that provided management with the first flag on potentially bad hires. Via accelerated courses in front-end code, back-end infrastructure, and everything in between, we learned the Facebook way. The company had a seemingly genetic inclination for homebrewing almost every element of its technical stack, using open-source languages or tools occasionally, but then customizing them to the point where they were more Facebook than anything else. Since even seasoned engineers came from a completely different universe, it was necessary to indoctrinate them in the one true way. For new grads fresh out of school, with no knowledge of how real production engineering worked, their entire technical worldview would be molded to conform with Facebook's. Forever after, even while working at other companies, they'd drag along those prejudices and attitudes as if they were God's revealed truth. The Googlers now at Facebook had surely done the same. I had five bugs to fix. I didn't even know how to code PHP, the front-end language Facebook was written in. It was a famously crappy language and development environment with few users those days, chosen merely because that's what Zuck knew as a hacker at Harvard. Following the online documentation, I successfully set up a dev server, the machine on which I'd develop code, kind of like a personal sandbox. I then pulled an entire version of Facebook's code from the main repository, browsing all of it via an editor. So this is what all the fuss was about, huh? For giggles, I changed the text of the like button to an obscenity, saved the code, hit reload in my browser, which pointed to my private version of Facebook, and indeed, I could now copulate with everything on the web. Make an impact. Fortune favors the bold. I was well on my way. Product Masseur For that reason, let a prince have the credit of conquering his state, as the means will always be considered honorable, and he will be praised by all, because the vulgar masses are always seduced by the appearances of things and by the outcome of events, and in this world there are only vulgar masses. Niccolo Machiavelli, The Prince June 2011 Footnote The observant reader will note we've jumped ahead two months. After signing on with Facebook, I immediately did the employee onboarding described in the previous chapter and then went on unpaid leave to let the boys finish the AdGroc deal. A formal acquisition, even a small one, takes weeks of legal and technical due diligence. If I had publicly started work at FB, rumor would have gotten around the valley echo chamber that AdGroc was either falling apart or getting bought, threatening the delicate deal going on. Thus, I had to act like I was still the CEO of AdGrok socially. So, how's your startup going? Um, well, mostly hiding out on my tiny boat, given I had nowhere else to live or go. A penniless millionaire on paper. End footnote. So what had Facebook hired me to do? My official title was Product Manager, commonly abbreviated as PM. While the role of Product Manager is near universal in tech companies of any size, the de facto or de jure reality of it varies widely. What the PM does is in many ways representative of how the company itself develops product. Some companies have opted for different titles. At Microsoft, they are known as program managers. At Palantir, the secretive defense intelligence software company founded by the billionaire investor Peter Thiel, 
They are known as product navigators, which sounds terribly romantic. Whatever the flavor of title, what does a product manager, by whatever name, actually do? The MBA-esque job description would be CEO of the product, because those B-school pukes like sporting acronymic titles. This is many a company's definition of the role, and it's not completely wrong, though it makes the job seem statelier than it is. A more illustrative description is shit umbrella. If you imagine a bursting monsoon of clumpy diarrhea pouring down like God's own biblical vengeance, that is more or less where you find yourself in either a startup or a large, high-profile, and complex organization like Facebook. You, my dear product manager, are the communal manservant to your engineering team, holding a large, cumbersome paramount above their heads bent over keyboards on which they furiously type. By definition, what you do is everything that needs to be done, other than hands-on keyboard-type code. So that means sitting in endless meetings with the privacy legal team, giving highly selective and edited versions of what your product is going to do, and explaining how it fits into some antediluvian legal rubric. It means pitching a room full of smiling and empty-headed salespeople so they can start priming the client pump and bring spend into your new product baby. It means wheeling and dealing with other PMs to either cajole a product change or cadge some engineering resource. It means fronting for the product in high-level meetings with senior management and trying to place it, like a quickly falling Tetris piece, into the rudimentary blueprint of their world. It means defending your team from the depredations of other PMs when they come around asking for favors or arguing for a deprioritization of some element of your product plan for one in theirs. As PM, if you can convince engineers to build things you stipulate, you are golden. But if you can't, then you are like the dictator who has lost control of his army. It doesn't matter if you have the United Nations or the church on your side. That is, if management has anointed you as leader. You're ending up in front of a firing squad sooner rather than later. The most pitiful sight in the Facebook ads team was the PMs who had lost the confidence of their engineers. Nominally in charge of some product area, they were like the government in exile of some occupied nation, sitting there with all the pomp of their position, sending emails and roadmaps hither and yon, and yet producing nothing. Internally, it was a demeaning, groveling job. Externally, it was a different story. As a Facebook product manager, you resembled an Afghan warlord or a pirate captain, fearsome in appearance to any outsiders, the scourge of entire companies and industries, but actually barely in control of your small band of engineer hooligans and always one step from mutiny. To the outside world, your job was easy. A two-line email would have the senior management of any company waiting eagerly in the Facebook reception area almost instantaneously. Many were the startups I conjured thusly, they sputtering in flattery despite my showing up late and surly, demanding and getting a full walkthrough of their entire product and business model, then dismissing them after a 45-minute meeting. Facebook is the 800-pound gorilla in everyone's bed. To the extent you can make the gorilla do something, you have the attention of everyone. The most craven among the Facebook PMs mistake that power for their own. Such insufferable poseurs populate the ranks of every product management core, but the all-powerful incumbent nature of Facebook allows them to flourish more than usual. What was my specific product? My newfound beat was ads targeting for the Facebook ad system. Targeting is the set of data and tools that advertisers use to define a set of users. It can be demographic in nature, 
for example, 30- to 40-year-old females, geographic, people within five miles of Sarasota, Florida, or even based on Facebook profile data. Do you have children? That is, are you in the mommy segment? Targeting is where the data rubber meets the money road, so to speak. To use a physics analogy, pressure is force per unit area, and similarly, monetization is amount of data per pixel. The more data you bring to bear for every square inch of screen real estate, then the more that ad will be worth. Targeting is how that data gets applied to the screen real estate. It's the alchemy that turns pure data into real-world cash. Since more good data meant more cash, measuring Facebook's per-ad monetization would be a read on how well that data-cash conversion process was running. To that end, in my first week of real work, I fired up the company's revenue dashboards. The revenue dashboards were a series of internal websites accessible only to senior management or ads employees. Access was gated on a need-to-know basis as total revenue was sensitive. Everyone knew Facebook would go public one day, even if not precisely when, and outsiders would have loved an illicit look at the numbers. All the revenue dashboards were black, with either yellow or white lettering, closely resembling the Bloomberg terminal you'd find on a Wall Street trading desk. They were sliceable and diceable by parameters like geography, ads product, time of day, and any other attribute relevant to the operation of the ad system. I went to the top-level dashboard. As I would eventually learn, Facebook always had a high-level report for every area, whether it was ads or growth or something else, with the key number that defined success set off in large yellow letters in the upper left of the screen. Monthly active users, the yardstick for Facebook, daily revenue, mobile users, whatever the metric was that encapsulated the health of your part of the Facebook world, there it was with unappealable finality. Wait, what? I looked again to make sure I hadn't narrowed the reporting to some godforsaken country with minimal monetization. I hit reload. Nope. This pitiful number, which I cannot share with you thanks to Facebook Legal, was Facebook's average CPM. Footnote. CPM means cost per mail and refers to the cost for every thousand showings, or impressions, of an ad. It's the cost per square foot of the media world. End footnote. It was utter dog shit. How could Facebook monetization, the much-ballyhooed future of the Internet, be so low? This was bottom-of-the-barrel stuff, comparable to what you'd monetize your Star Wars blog at if you ran AdSense ads. To say I was stunned was an understatement. I dumped my company, pawned off my co-founders on Twitter, and accepted big company assimilation for this? Like most Facebook outsiders, I hadn't understood the monetization. Wooed by the external whisper numbers that were in the $2 billion per year range, I had assumed the per-impression monetization was healthy. The reality was otherwise. Before 2013, if you wanted to know how Facebook made money, the answer was very simple. A billion times any number is still a big fucking number. Facebook monetization was laughable compared with Google's on a purely CPM basis, but usage was ungodly. Up there with heroin, carbohydrates, or a weekly paycheck, that's how addictive and rewarding Facebook was. Here's a tangible example. The Facebook mobile app at the time was utter shite in terms of responsiveness, averaging something like 90 seconds of latency in some developing countries. Despite that, many people spent hours a day on Facebook, waiting a solid minute for the app to load after every click or comment. 
ignoring their surroundings, the imploring gaze of their wives or their children's bid for attention. All those eyeballs over hours turned into cheap ads that gradually, as many raindrops make a river, amassed a torrent of revenue for Facebook. That's how Facebook paid for the free food in the summer of 2011. My second bit of first-day revelation had to do with people rather than money. This was the personnel state of Facebook ads when I signed on. About 30 or so engineers and one designer spread out over about a dozen products, grouped into broad areas nucleated by six product managers, of which I was one. The whole merry circus was run by my boss, Gokul Rajaram, who seemed to always be writing three emails at once, along with attending at least two meetings, one in person, the other via Skype or his mobile. Gokul was the nominal product leader for ads, meaning he was the product masseur, who gave overall direction to what Facebook actually built in ads, as well as managing the product managers themselves, at the time an unruly lot, each with their own miniature product fiefdom. Rather than an overall ad strategy, what we had was a general feeling in the air, a sort of collective mood that, like a slanted floor, tended to send more people one way than the other. Insofar as targeting and related teams like optimization, run by the Israeli who had interviewed me, were concerned, it seemed like a catch-as-catch-can circus of random roadmaps and product ideas. Many of the ideas emerging from this burbling chaos were interesting and exciting. Many were just plain weird and almost certainly ineffectual. Lots of local mythologies, mostly unsubstantiated by data, reigned around the magical value of sharing on Facebook or of building an audience for your Facebook page. Just as every product manager had a product marketing manager who spun the marketing story around that team's creations, there was a marketing analog to Gokul as well. Brian Boland, whom we've already met in our first Zuck meeting, sat next to Gokul and ran the growing militia of PMMs, to use the Facebook lingo. A PMM would be paired with a PM, like a marketing twiddle-dee to the product twiddle-dum for every team in Facebook ads. Sales, its army organized into a multi-leveled hierarchy spread over dozens of regional offices, was held at arm's length and reported to David Fisher, one of Cheryl's gang from Google. Other than Fisher's inputs to Cheryl, Sales was a purely downstream consumer of whatever product created, getting its pre-digested pitch from one of Boland's PMMs. My only time in a big company before Facebook was spent on the Goldman Sachs trading floor, which was so outlandish and idiosyncratic it served as poor experience for the political atmosphere I now found myself in. I'd get to know this class of Gokul Boland person very well, given that half my job was spent attempting to manipulate, mostly ineffectually, their emotions and perceptions. Everyone who individually contributed to Facebook product reported to a Gokul or Boland, product managers, including me, to Gokul, PMMs to Boland, and engineers to their local engineering manager, who in turn reported to KX, the ads engineering manager, whom Adgrok first pitched on meeting Facebook. Together, that management stratum ran ads, for better or worse. How did this largely unchoreographed corporate dance play out in practice? Facebook ads product management, in the Gokul mold, meant a weekly product manager meeting. At the time, it was six to eight people around a table, recounting what they'd worked on that week. There was a certain strutting, showy quality to it almost like a Y Combinator dinner, at which you were expected to demonstrate ever-accelerating progress on your particular piece of the Facebook ads cake. 
I'd mentally rehearse my script as I walked along with whatever cluster of fellow PMs into the mini-demo day of another weekly Gokul meeting. Additionally, there'd be a monthly general product manager meeting meant to create some level of cross-company cohesion. These were run by, who else? Chris Cox, he of onboarding speech fame, who was then head of Facebook product. This was the YC Demo Day style meeting taken to the company level, with lots of glib salesmanship and a different momentary favorite in the PM team taking the stage each time to much applause. Every meeting, someone would get the team award for exemplary PM-ship, recommended by other PMs. Footnote. I got it one month for my handling of the Irish data privacy audit, which was a big deal at the time, and which we'll cover soon. As often happens with awards, it was for what I thought was pretty unexceptional conduct, while other far more meritorious behavior of mine went unrewarded. Ultimately, it spurred more skepticism than pride. End footnote. Cox had some weird thing where he'd clap by whipping his hand around repeatedly, such that fingers would snap violently with every whirl, and it would be the prompt for the whole room to clap in turn. The ads team's mandate was very simple. Make more money, but don't piss off users while doing so. The monetization side of Facebook was still stuck in that subservient role typical of earliest stage startups that are mostly consumer-facing, and with a CEO who abhors grubby lucre. Kind of like a patient mother trailing her destructive toddler and picking up discarded toys along the way, Ads was expected to make money with whatever new features the user-facing side of the company launched. Those products were not designed with monetization in mind. In fact, they were at best the output of a studied strategy around user engagement, and at worst, the most recent brain-dropping of whatever visionary product leader Zuck had confided in, or of Zuck himself. The ads team was then forced to turn that product, success or failure, into money. Building a viable business out of that would be like trying to build a house out of parts selected at random from a Home Depot. You might be able to pull it off if you were lucky or very resourceful, but more than likely, you would end up with some misshapen hut nobody would want to live in. That's precisely what Facebook ads was until mid-2012 or so. That was pre-IPO Facebook product manager life for you in all its glory. Between the conversations I was having in ads and the corporate convocations I was part of, I began to think I had entered some alternate universe, an unexpected social media twilight zone. So I did what I always did, which was snoop on everyone's background via Facebook and LinkedIn to figure out the nature of this strange company I was keeping. It was clear that nobody, and I do mean nobody, in the ads team had ever worked at any sort of advertising company. The only exceptions were the Googlers who had possibly worked on some publisher-side technology. This was distinctly weird for a couple of reasons. Ad tech is an incestuous world, and every advertising product manager or engineer has a resume filled with stints at one or another ad startup. It is also a fairly insular world, which outsiders seldom dare to enter, and from which insiders rarely leave, shackled via some odd industry loyalty to the business of turning pixels into money. Everyone on the ads team seemed to have been vetted for Facebook acceptability and values, but nobody, other than perhaps the aforementioned former Googlers, had any notion of what the outside ads world was like. What was weirder, everyone seemed absolutely cool with that. They didn't know what they didn't know, and it was a feature rather than a bug. 
On the one hand, that was good, as the ads world tended to self-organize into stale patterns and product ideas. Maximize the click-through rate, autoplay video ads for movie trailers, target auto-intenders, that is, people in the market for a car. It was the same old, same old everywhere. Facebook was to be a new paradigm in paid media, breaking every rule or mold. On the other hand, Christ Jesus, had anyone heard of real ads targeting based on user actions like buying something or browsing a product catalog? Nope. Any culture able to shut itself off from the outside world goes insane in its own unique way, and Facebook had essentially done that with its ads team. But as on Wall Street, where even someone who knew the correct price of a security couldn't go against the will of the market, you couldn't question the reigning insanity. And so one went along. Eventually, this cluelessness would reach its magnificent apotheosis in the rise and fall of a bet-the-company product called OpenGraph and its monetization twin sponsored stories, and in later chapters you'll hear plenty about both. As I did with Twitter, though, I'll make an explicit proviso. The statements here, and even more damning ones later, were true, or at least true as perceived by me at the time. Tech companies, even relatively large ones, are dynamic beasts. They change quickly. Facebook's redeeming quality, the magical tendency that has saved it in the past and will save it in the future, is its ability to rapidly adapt to changing circumstances or to the results of its own bold product bets. In 2011 and much of 2012, the Facebook ads product was a clunker, of unproved value to even the least discerning advertisers, and completely useless to most marketers trying to actually drive sales other than a few annoying games companies. The monetization was pathetic, the ad units themselves grotesquely small and unattractive, and the management tools on offer buggy and painful to use. But Facebook would get very smart very fast. By early 2013, the company would figure out exactly where its value lay, and it would have nothing to do with any of the Byzantine gobbledygook that was being bandied about the ads team circa 2011 or in the public-facing marketing materials it was pushing on deep-pocketed advertisers. Facebook essentially owns the online advertising future. How it went from advertising zero to hero is the crux of this story.